With Joe Biden sitting above a 50% approval rating and the Republican Party still split between the MAGA wing and the blue bloods who built the party, do Republicans really have an electoral future in the 2020s? Perhaps pragmatism and practicality are the answers. Perhaps. Both parties seem to be moving towards the extremes, but do either of the parties have a route to reclaiming the center? Republicans might, but the party can't seem to get past the frenzied rumors of deep state machinations to solve the problems that make a real difference to the majority of voters. Are we doomed to hear more sturm and drang about crises and cultural issues rather than solutions? The host of Practically Political, the very pragmatic Republican and Rockefeller heir, David Spencer is Politicon's guest this week, and he joins us to look at how we can all become stakeholders in our shared future. I'll ask him, how the heck are we going to get along? Are you where are you in California? Where are you? Where are you based? Yeah, are you in, you're south in California. Of, yeah. uh, just, a, just south of San Francisco in, uh, in Hillsborough. Yeah. Okay. How do you know you? And you know our my good friend, our podcast good friend, Carrie Sheffield, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been, uh, you know, we've been trying to launch our practically political podcast, and she's been really helpful and uh, kind of a, a mentor and and someone I really get along with, and so she very kindly uh, passed my name on to you folks, and so I'm uh, I'm happy to be here. You know, there aren't there aren't many people that have my perspective you know people are i guess michael Steele is probably the closest but uh yeah so we love michael. Who's, a, who's, a true, who's a true rockefeller republican you know who, who's trying to save the party not just acquiesce she i don't know many people who don't get along with carrie carrie and i disagree on a whole bunch but we she's just one of the sweetest people and so helpful and so smart and on it so when she when she texted the other day and said um oh you need to talk to to my friend dave i immediately that same day I, I talked to our producers and said let's let's see if we can get him on because what you're trying to do is something you're right not many republicans are doing right now? I mean, there seem to be, I guess, three camps of Republicans from my perspective, and you are a, um, you're, are you still on the, the California Republican Party um, committee, executive committee? Uh, I'm not on the executive committee But you're still no. a member of the party, yeah? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. I've been registered as a Republican uh, since I was able to vote for Ronald Reagan, my first election in 19. Okay, so you, well, that was a very different Republican Party back then than it is now. Ronald Reagan would be kicked out of the Republican Party on his derriere. So when I hear Ted Cruz wax poetic about Ronald Reagan, forgive me for uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not taking it too seriously. But there are th- there's sort of three buckets, at least from my perspective, from the other side of the aisle. Um, there are Republicans who have completely gone in full bore with the new I mean I hate to say it but the new republican brand which is very which seems to be very trump trump tastic so to speak and then yes, there and then there are folks who are not who who use the word republican in their bio but for for pretty much every other thing they do, they have abandoned the Republican Party, both in both in name and in ideal. I think of, I mean, on, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of people like Ana Navarro, who, um, you know, obviously a big supporter of the Bush uh, 
uh, campaigns, both Jeb and George. But, you know, now on The View, tends to agree with Democrats even on policy more than anything else. Um, Nicole Wallace, who helped the, the, John, McCain, yep. the John McCain campaign and worked for George Bush, um, not very aligned with anything that's conservative anymore. And then there's this really, really small, small, small bucket of folks. And I consider Michael Steele to be a good example of that. Um, Megan McCain to be a good friend of mine to be a good example of that. And it sounds like what you're trying to do, maybe Liz Cheney is also a good example of that we've seen in the past few, past few months, of people who are still Republicans and still conservatives, but don't have time for the, 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 is, it the is it a rebranding that the party has gone through right now? I mean, the, you, there, there are very few people who have been able to stay true to their Republican principles while also distancing themselves from the other knick-knack paddywhack that's going on in the party. Well, I think that's true. And I would say, Clay, rebranding would almost be complimentary because rebranding means that you have something to sell. A question that I ask so many people is, what does the Republican Party stand for today? Uh, other than a vessel for the special interest of corporations and our wealthy donors. And I think that was one of the great tragedies of the Trump era, irrespective of what you think of the former president, was so many principles like free trade, like sensible immigration, like a consistent China policy, like a strong Russia policy, like an alliance-based foreign policy, the list goes on and on. Fiscal discipline, now, in his defense, that went out the window long before he arrived. But so many of the uh, traditional Republican principles have been just jettisoned. And so my question is, yes, this, because of democratic fecklessness, which you can always count on, that's all, I mean, don't get me started on that. But yes, this strategy may work. You may be able to win in 22. You may be able to win in 24, uh, though that's going to be harder. But I think what the party is basically saying is we have to do everything we can to preserve white minority rule. So to build on, in terms of what you were saying about the types of Republicans, I think to be a Republican now, you don't have to promulgate the big lie but you just don't, you have to not disavow it and you have to be on board with all these voting laws, and I use that term kindly, that are being passed in all these states. Okay, so, so I want to I get you to help me answer that question about what do the Republicans stand for. And I want to also answer what, the, what you believe, how, where you feel the Democrats, what they stand for now, and figure out if, if really there is middle, if there's, if there's some chasm in the middle that's not being covered. So, I mean, if you were to ask people, I think, of the Marjorie Taylor Greene perspective, <laughs> what the Republican Party stands for, I think a lot of them would say national pride, protection of our, our country and our citizens and our borders, individuality, which is ironic, um, uh, freedom, <laughs> which is a banner that can be kind of... <laughs> wrapped around anything but i mean america first america first yeah there are a lot of there's a lot of um it's, it's sort of that nationalism that i think probably could in some circumstances transcend just the traditional republican brand i think there are a lot of progressive minded people who love america want America to be taken care of first. I don't think that most liberals, at least I'm not one of the liberals who wants America to be weak and, <laughs> and, and apologetic. But so if that's the Republican Party, what, is, what do you think the Democratic Party right now is 
presenting itself as? What does the Democrat Party stand for? Well, I think what the Democratic Party does, first and foremost, they they say, look, inequality is a terrible thing. We're trying to lessen inequality. And and I think and I also think that they stand they, they want government to have a more active role in people's lives. They want to protect um, social issues, you know, whether it's a woman's right to choose, whether it's LBGT rights, things like that. So I, I do think that that and what you said before about all what the Marjorie Taylor Greens would say, you know, those are just those are bumper stickers. Right. But those aren't really policies. And I think that's what the party does is that they 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 talk about cultural issues and they talk about all the, the crises that we're having. But there's not really any solutions that you hear. It's just mostly obstruction. And again, the strategy is that um, we can win and we can, this is our last chance to preserve white minority rule because the demographics are changing. And I, and a lot of Americans have gone along with this because, look, I, I understand that this is going to be a majority uh, minority country by the year 2050. And that scares a lot of people. And I think that stoked up tribalism and Democrats abandon a lot of these voters, these blue collar whites that were their bread and butter. And, you know, Trump, Steve Bannon was the mastermind, but Trump pretended to care and, and uh, made people feel that he, that he, that he, that he had their back. If that's what those, if that's what the MAGA crowd believes, though, why do you think Trump got a higher percentage of Latino and black voters in 2020 than he did in 2016 and in 2016 than Republicans had in 2012 and, tw- and 2008? I mean, rep- the, the minority vote for Donald Trump in both of his presidential elections was higher than um, Republicans had had since George W. Bush in 2000, right? Why, oh, yeah. why is that George, the case well, if they just want white minority rule? Well, I think... For, for Trump got, I mean, Trump got more votes than anyone in history other than Joe Biden in 2020. But I think you bring up a really good point. And if I were a Democratic strategist, what you just said would be one of the biggest red flags for me because Trump's support amongst blacks went from 13 to 19 percent from 2016 to 2020 and from Latinos from 32 to 36 percent. And these are people that he called breeders and rapists and drug dealers. And why is that? Well, it's not because they were embracing Trump. It's because they were repelled by the Democrats. And I, you know, the last piece I wrote, I said the Dems can win in 22 if they party like it's 2018, not like it's 2020. And what I mean by that is I thought in 2018 they finally had it figured out, right, where they said, you know what, where there's very little daylight between Trump voters and us is on kitchen table issues, Uh, issues that matter in people's lives, health care jobs, education, the minimum wage. That's what they talked about. And they won 40 seats. So what happens in 2020? You know, it's open borders. It's it's confiscating guns. It's abortion till birth. It's packing the courts, I, I, defunding the police. I have to say, whoever came up with defunding the police deserves the stupidity award of the century, you know, because as, as Alan Simpson said, the inimitable Alan Simpson the difference between genius and stupidity, genius has its limits. <laughs> and, you know, I just, the, the amount of damage that those three words have done to the Democratic Party. And so you look at the 2020 election and other than Biden winning, which was really a, more a rejection of Trump than an embrace, an embracing of Biden, I think it was a terrible election for Democrats. They lost seats in the House. They could have won a couple more Senate seats. It was only Trump 
once again, who gave them the save at the end by disparaging mail-in voting uh, so often and so many times in Georgia that they won both Senate seats. Because I think that Raphael Warnick probably put, would have won, but Kelly, because Kelly Leffler was a bad candidate, but David Perdue would have definitely won. So M- McConnell would have been in charge of the Senate. So it's so frustrating. They, they, they just can't help themselves. And I haven't seen any indication that they've, that they've gotten the message. You know, the squad is as, as loud as ever. It's like herding cats. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, I, 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 as a Democrat, have been more than happy to give shit where shit is due um, to my own party. But, but I mean, we had a guest, our, our guest last week was very, very supportive of Trump and his policies and his, you know, practices too, I guess, and, um, and had a very difficult time trying to identify specifically or, or finding a willingness to specifically say, here's where his party, my party, Republican Party. He had a hard time saying um, any 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 issues that his own party had and what they could fix. Of course, um, but you've been, but you've not had that issue. And I asked him. You know, I, I was more than happy while we spoke to say to him, "Listen, here are the things that I think my party needs to get it together on." Um, and he was so effusive almost in his praise of me for, you know, seeing the, the error of my own party's ways. Um, and I asked him, so why, if you think that's a great thing for me, when I'm willing to criticize my own party at times when I don't think they've done a good job, why do you have a problem with it when it's a Republican? You know, when, when, Brian, when Brian Kemp in Georgia does not you know, claim there was fraud when Brad Raffensperger doesn't, uh, you know, claim there was fraud in the Georgia election and so on and so forth. How much crap have you gotten um, within your own party for calling fouls on your own side at times? Well, you know, I think uh, what um, a lot of people, again, as you said, there's there's different types of Republicans. But one of the things that's been so dismaying to me, Clay, is how many mainstream people, how many people that I never thought would, you know, go for the personality cult or sell their souls or whatever you want to say. And I think, you know, taking a step back, establishment Republicans, and I am in many ways one of them, uh, and I've been a never Trumper from the start and a lot of it, even a lot of people who were, they just sort of sat idly by, you know, they, they were complicit in the sense that, oh, well, he'll never get the nomination. Oh, he'll never win. Oh, you know, he'll just, uh, McConnell will pass the bills and he'll just sign them. Oh, he'll grow into the job, you know, and, and they, they, they kept rationalizing it. And every time they, one of those didn't come true. It was harder and harder. They just got sucked more and more into it. So I think that's certainly one of the dynamics that that were, was at play here. And I grew up in New York City, so when you grew up in New York City, you Donald Trump was entertaining. You know, you I didn't hate him. If it's possible to have negative respect for someone, <laughs> I, I think I, I think that would apply. But you know, yeah, he was a he was a grifter, but he was our grifter. You know, yeah, he was a two-bit con man, but he was entertaining. You know, it's just kind of who he was. And so I think that people just didn't take it seriously. And what they didn't, they focused on him. They didn't focus on the dynamic that that would get him elected. And that is that for so many voters in middle America, the American dream is dead. And, and, uh, they feel like they're losing their country. And, and that's why, 
you know, the whole hillbilly elegy crowd, I totally understand why they voted for Trump. You know, as much whatever you want to think about Trump, you can't blame his voters for voting for them for him because he he gave a great pitch. Their lives were not in good shape. And again, the, the Democrats deserve some blame here. They discarded these voters. Voters voters don't mind being used, but they sure as hell mind being discarded. Okay, so you practically practically um Republican uh and it, it is for Republicans who want to be pragmatic and be practical and want to, to solve problems. So instead of playing Monday morning quarterback, which I think I'm, I love to do also, um, let's talk about where, where both the Republican Party, where the Democrat Party, where the country in general can and should try to go next if we want to make things work. And so 2022 is around the corner. Um, are you able to look at the Republican slate of candidates and know which ones believe the things they're saying versus which ones are saying what they are saying because they don't want to be Liz Cheney out of the party? I mean, is it, are, there, are there a lot of people who are elected who feel the same way you do but who are simply afraid to act vote on their principles because they're afraid of getting kicked out? Yeah, and first of all, I would say I, with a, with a smile, we had we were originally practically Republican, but we changed our name to practically political because these days half the people see the word Republican and they won't even listen yeah. to what you're saying. So, we, there. you know, there. again, that was a just <laughs> that was more out of pragmatism than anything. But to to answer your question, you know, I think there might be five people on Capitol Hill you know, of the MTG or, you know, Lauren Bobbitt from Colorado or Biggs from Arizona or some of those people that actually believe that. Uh, and I think I have never seen a group of vote, a group of politicians more absolutely ter- terrified of its own voters. And I think that's what's creating the dynamic here. And you just see what it's done to the party because Liz Cheney is such a good example. Here's someone who voted 93% of the time with Trump and she's replaced by Elise Stefanik, who I used to think of as a very pragmatic Republican who voted with Trump far less of the time because there's just one criterion, right? It's loyalty to the to the cult. So, I- But is it his cult anymore? I mean, tr- just because I want to... Listen, we all love talking about Trump, but the truth is he didn't even win this latest straw poll, right? I mean, Ron DeSantis did. Is it simply a is it simply a Trump cult, or is it a is it a movement of these this particular group of voters who could? I mean, this movement could be led by Ron DeSantis next. It could be read, led by Ted Cruz next. It could be led by Tucker Carlson or Josh Hawley next. Is it is it necessarily that they're afraid of Trump, or are they afraid of of the fact that they, they don't even know what their base wants anymore. They don't agree with what their base wants anymore. Well, I think it's, I think it's a few of those things. I, and, and I don't mean to be, uh, give a, a nebulous answer, but I think that, yes, there is certainly, there's a bit of a personality cult, though I agree with you. I ask as a, pragmat- as a pragmatist, you know, here's a guy that lost the popular vote twice, only president ever was in, impeached twice, first president since Hoover to lose the House, the White House, and the Senate in four years. That's not someone that I call, has, would say, has a winning proposition. But I also think a lot of it is cover for the strategy where the Mitch McConnells and the, the smart people, and I don't put Kevin McCarthy in that camp, uh, realize that this, that this is the chance and this is their a good cover to try to preserve white minority rule because come up with more palatable candidates or change policies 
or try to rig the system, which is what you're seeing here with these voter restriction laws. And uh, so I think that, that, it, that, it, that it's a combination of factors. But you're right. I think Trump's influence is waning. I also don't think he'll run again because his ego couldn't handle losing and he may not be in the legal shape to do it. So I think there is some uh, using it as an excuse. But I also think that that they've kind of gone so far down this path now, their chance after January 6th, when a couple of them paused and looked in the mirror and I thought maybe they'd have a change of heart, but it seems like they've doubled down. So I think we're past the point of no return, unfortunately. Um, is if, when you were talking about changing the, I mean, the voting laws, changing some of the game, et cetera. A lot of this is built on this belief, um, this. I don't know if I don't know if it's conspiracy theory or not. This whole swamp feeling, you know, drain the swamp, the deep state. We've had we've had episodes of this podcast where just the uttering of the words "deep state" will send people into frenzy. <laughs> but but when you talk about when you when you make that give that statistic about the first president since Herbert Hoover to have lost the House, the Senate, and the White House um, in four years, it makes me think. If I'm one of them, that's just more evidence of the fact that that the world is against Donald Trump. These are not statistics. These are not these are not superlatives that he has won or earned. It's because the media is against him. It's because the Democrats and the deep state and the bureaucrats are against him and they're trying to make him out to look the worst that's possible. So, how do you combat a how do you combat that? within the Republican Party, if that is the belief of so many people um, and it's being perpetuated night after night by certain talking heads on other shows, how do practical and pragmatic conservatives like yourself convince your own party members, y'all, there, there's no cabal of, of Illuminati in there trying to hurt us? We're hurting ourselves. Well, I think what you bring up is is the greatest challenge, not just to getting uh, unity within the party, but also in terms of our democracy, because I really do believe that if people, if not only if the loser of the election isn't going to respect the outcome, but if you have a large percentage of the population not uh, respecting the outcome, then it's very hard to govern a country. It's very hard to get a balance. So to answer your question, I think, and this is what I think some of the stupid stuff like you know, canceling the Keystone Pipeline and stopping construction of the wall. A lot of the executive orders that Biden did, I thought were very counterproductive because I think what needs to be done is you have to focus on things that people want. People want, COVID was their first concern. The economy was the second concern. Voting rights is a concern. Immigration is a concern. So if you can get to the point where people feel that government is working for them, and, and government is something that improves their lives and doesn't hurt their lives. And again, you know, what really worries me is this whole woke cancel stuff that's going on, too, because it plays right into the right wing media's uh, vision of, you see, they're, they're, you know, you always hear people say they're coming for you, right? And that's what that's what you hear Trump. You hear people like Matt Gates say that, and the media plays right in that. And Bill Maher, who is hardly a conservative, you know, he said there should be a stand your ground law against cancel culture. You know, this is the reason people hate Democrats. This is the reason it's never good enough, right? Uh, and and so I think that if I were a Republican, I would try to. And this is why I think someone like Ron DeSantis 
if I were the Democrats, I would fear him the most because he's played it very skillfully. He's an able legislature and he's gotten stuff done. He, he was proved right on COVID. He had schools open for the full school year in, in all 67 counties in Florida. You know, California, we were 50th in terms of getting kids back to school. <laughs> Surprised me, we weren't 51st. Um, so, and, and a lot of the laws he's passed are laws that play to the base, but are inconsequential, you know, like banning demonstrations or even the voting law that he, or banning passports, vaccine passports, or even the voting law that was passed in Florida wasn't as bad as the other ones. So if you have someone like that who can assuage the base enough, but still actually be, you know, be a good governor, someone who can govern, Trump was so legislatively incompetent that nothing got done other than that busted but budget-busting tax cut. What do I mean, you talked about some of the executive orders and, and actually getting things done. Are there compromises that should be, that, are, that have been on the table? We're right now looking at the fact that today uh, Republicans and Democrats and the presidential administ- Biden administration announced that they had come to some sort of framework compromise on infrastructure. Um, it, it remains to be seen whether or not it can pass the Senate, because there are only five Republicans involved in that. Whether they can get another five to come on board um, remains to be seen. But I'm, I'm, you've mentioned voting laws a few times. You know, Joe Manchin came up with what he called a compromise solution between SRHR, HR1, SR1, and where he believed the he could voting rights should be. And it included some things that I think a lot of Democrats were frankly shocked to see people like Stacey Abrams support, um, shocked to see people like President, former President Obama support, um, requiring voter ID, uh, allowing the purging of voter rolls. And yet Republicans almost immediately dismissed it as, the, I think Roy Blunt from Missouri called it the Stacey Abrams voting, voting rights uh, bill. Um, what's the, is there ever an argument that either side, both sides, simply don't want to solve problems because it takes away um, their ability to bitch? <laughs> I mean, if you've been handed voting voter ID from Democrats after years of, of Democrats campaigning against it, and now you're going to say no to it, what's the argument there? Like, what, what is the purpose of, of politicians? Well, I- you know, for, here's here's the here's the funny thing, Clay, is that for all the huffing and puffing, you've heard about voter voting laws. Or remember when voter ID laws came out after the, after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, and liberals said it was going to be the end of democracy. All this stuff really hasn't changed things because if you make it incrementally harder to vote, then that emboldens people to vote more. So I think up until now, every time I hear people say, "Oh," You know, it's what's it's been terrible. I said you had 81 million people vote last year for a presidential candidate. The turnout was the best ever. But what's different about some of these laws is that in the past, it's always been about what happens when people are leading up to ballots or casting ballots. Now you're seeing in some of these laws like the Georgia law, the ability to do things after the vote is cast. And that is scary. If you can have local county boards overruled by a legislature in Georgia, that's a problem. If you can, just the alleging of fraud can give Texas the power to overrule some county boards, that's the problem. And I think the reason that there's been such a uh, 
just a, almost an instantaneous rejection by Republicans. And, and I think, by the way, it was poor strategy on McConnell's part, because I think he should have rolled with it and he, and he could have blocked it down the road. So he's usually pretty shrewd, but I thought he, he misplayed this one. But is because they realize that this is such an important part of the strategy to uh, make sure that if 2020 happens again, that they'll be prepared for it. In a place like Georgia, you know, our... our okay, you elaborate. 2020 so happens words, again, as in, in if words, Democrats happen to Georgia, win again? they could find those 11,780 votes that Trump so infamously asked Brad Raffensperger to find. So the, but that sounds like well, it's real not fraud. Just the, the legislature has the right now to overrule county election boards. And that's 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 never happened before. And they'll tell you, oh, there are all these hurdles that have to overcome be overcome. But that may be true. But the fact is, that's the basis of the law. And I think that law was just a masterpiece of subterfuge with the, which the Democrats went for hook, line and sinker, because there are already rules saying you can't pass out water if you're voting or supporting a candidate. They're already, you know, they made some things harder, some things easier. But the real part of the bill is it gives them the power to to affect the vote after it's cast. And that's what's really scary. Is part of the problem the fact that we just have two choices? I think the two-party system has served us very well. I think the problem is that you have Right now, because things have become so polarized and our system has become so dysfunctional, you know, we're, we're a silly country. We're arguing about things like, you know, transgender athletes. I'm not saying that's not a worthwhile topic, but we're, we're not dealing with our crumbling infrastructure. We're not dealing with threats abroad. We're not dealing with some of the real problems that we have. Uh, I, and I think that the two-party system... But where are we arguing about those things? Because I, I don't disagree with you on woke culture, and anyone who listens to this show knows that I think it's a bunch of ugh, malarkey, to use a presidential <laughs> term. Um, but but if, if I look at what happens on Twitter and what I see in, on evening newscasts, then yeah, we are talking about a lot of those woke culture issues. But if I look at at the news and read what the Biden administration is doing and what votes are being taken in the House and the Senate, they're not addressing those things. The, 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 presidential, the president right now is not talking about transgender issues. He's not talking about woke culture cancellation. He is trying to get to work on infrastructure. Where are these arguments taking place? These petty little, the petty bullshit that distracts from the big issues that you've been talking about, they don't seem to be coming from the White House. They don't even seem to be coming that much from the floor of the Senate or the House because they're working on infrastructure or voting rights. Is it how much of this is the problem? A problem with the media covering things? Well, I, I think I think a lot of it is, and I think you're absolutely right that the Twitter sphere is 180 degrees from the real world. And I always tell people, you know, don't. Don't pay attention to social media. Pay attention to what people are saying. And I think the, the media has a real credibility problem because when you look back, I think in, in, during the Watergate time, 73% of people trusted the media to give them an honest accounting. Now I think it's 31% or something abysmal. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that the media has played into uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the narratives. Um, 
because, you know, in terms of whether, you know, there's systemic racism and a lot of this stuff. And again, I think that there's a lot of racism in this country. I think it's endemic. I don't think we're a systemically racist country. Um, but there are a lot of things we need to atone for. But I think the media, if, if things don't, don't uh, fit the narrative that they're trying to portray, then you don't hear about it. And I just think that does a real, a real disservice. A classic example is Ron DeSantis got a panel of people from top medical schools to basically say that kids wearing masks under eight didn't do anything and was harmful, which I think common sense would tell you is true. You know, and YouTube takes it off. So, you know, they, they play right into the hands of a lot of conservatives by, by doing that stuff. And so what you're, what you're having now, and this is the thing that worries me, is the founding fathers always based this country on people who would see and then decide. Now they decide and, they, and then they see. And I think the media uh, has done nothing to make that better. I think it's just been exacerbated. Who are going to be the people you think that we will look back at 30 years from now and recognize as the folks who got us out of this mess? Um, and I don't, mean, I don't mean necessarily that they have to have been president or whatnot, but who are the people right now who you think have the power, the influence, the authority, and the pragmatism to help change the direction well, of the I tide. Well, I think, you know, I right think now. there are some really good um, people out there. And by the way, you know, two of the, the governors with the highest approval ratings in the country are Republican governors in blue states. Maryland and Maryland and Vermont? Charlie Baker and uh, Larry Hogan. And, you well, think that you win a Republican primary right now? Probably not. But I mean, you're asking who who would we look back? And again, when we when we get out of this mess, and I'm an optimist, some people would say if we get out of this mess, I think when we get out of this mess, I'm not sure uh, what it's going to what it's going to be. But that's why, to me, I I feel unfortunately that the only thing that's going to bring the Republican Party back, and we need two parties. You know, third parties don't work; they suck vote. Well, just because Why that's not? our system, they 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 suck votes away from from good candidates. You know, I think George H. George H. W. Bush would have won in '92 if it weren't for Ross Perot, uh, and that's you know you can say that's good or bad, but that's but that's a in, in uh, a fact. So I think that the two party system served us very well. So just because we've run into a problem where the system is dysfunctional, I don't think that we should. Uh, jettison the two-party system. I think that, and that's why we can get into things about the electoral college and the vote and all that, but I think having two parties is good. It makes people have to at least modify their views a little bit. The problem is that... Go ahead. Isn't though... No. No, no. I, well, I'd hate, I didn't want to interrupt, but I, I, I will say, isn't that sort of like saying, I believe that my party is doing something horribly, but God forbid I bring in a third party because it might keep my party from winning. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if the Republican Party as it, as will continue to support the same sort of national pride, protectionism, white minority rule um, type philosophies, then wouldn't it be better to have a third party that might peel away some votes from that type of group than 
to simply say, okay, well, we've simply got we got two choices. I can think right now of Democrats who I know who would probably be more than happy to right. consider. I'm not saying I'm one of them, but but I know some more than happy to be to consider joining forces with you know somebody like sure. a David Jolly from Florida, former rep from from Florida, who's who's started his own third party, uh, trying to make a third party viable. Um, he was on the show a few months back, uh, simply because they. Democrats, too, are tired of the identity-type politics that, rep- that, that further left liberals are pushing us towards. Yep. Abigail she's, Sponberger, she's, for she's example, who would probably be more than happy to listen to a—she'd be more than happy to listen to a moderate-type third party. Connor Lamb. I mean, there would, it would not necessarily just peel away from Republicans. It may start with more Republicans in it than it does Democrats because— Arguably, Republicans are having a little bit more of a of a issue at the moment. But is 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 that real? Is it really an argument against a third party or multiple parties that well, we don't want to do it because it'll just bleed away voters from? No, I was you know, saying that the lesser the of two evils setup. I, I wasn't saying that, uh, or if I meant if I sound that way, I didn't mean to say it that that I'm against because they they suck away votes. But you know, if you look at say you take the Libertarian Party or you take some other party, it's very hard to get on the ballot. And right now we have an infrastructure that protects the two-party system in terms of our elections. So you, uh, it's very hard to come up with a third party. You have to either be a libertarian or you have to be uh, join one of the major parties. I, so I think, again, that the, the most realistic outcome or the best, you know, maybe the least bad option is the best way to say it, is that the Republican Party needs to lose a few elections, and then it's going to be forced to change, just like the Democratic Party was when they lost five out of six presidential elections, and then they still nominated Michael Dukakis in 1988, lost again, and then finally you had Bill Clinton come, who's the new type of Democrat, who was someone who was a traditional Democrat in a lot of ways, but he was for free trade, he was for a lot of things that... uh, uh, yeah, yeah, but 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 he took. He was a moderate. You know, for I, sure. the, the key is you have to have someone that doesn't have an apostasy, but has traditional party values, but is willing to be looking ahead in terms of areas where the party, their views might be might be dated. And free trade at the time was certainly one of them with the whole NAFTA thing and all that. A moderate who, by no. the way, never won more than fifty percent of the vote either. He was elected twice without ever no. In fact, Barack more Obama is the only Democrat other than Roosevelt who won fifty percent of the vote twice. Um, so, but I, I, th- I think that's that's more the solution. Again, you know, I'm a pragmatist. I would love it if we could just come up with a third party that would suck away the best candidates from each party and would be the party of pragmatism and the party of good governance. But the infrastructure is so sclerotic right now, it's, uh, it's very hard to do that. So I think the best, uh, the best opportunity is for Trumpism to fade out and the Republican Party will have to lose a few elections. And then they will, uh, most of the party will hopefully come around to what I believe is our, our guiding principles. And as you say, you know, a lot of minority voters, Latino voters, a lot of black voters, they're very pragmatic voters. And they, they, they don't, you know, you talk to most black voters, they don't care about reparations. You know, they, they care about jobs. They care about education. They care about issues that, again, um, uh, affect, their, affect their lives. 
We we didn't have as much time this week to get folks to write in, but we actually did get quite a few questions um, that were good for you. Uh, specifically, Carly from Vegas asks, New York City is seeing if ranked choice voting works. Could it help the rest of the country? You know, that's a very interesting question. I, we're probably not going to know till uh, the, the election till uh, the middle of July. Mm-hmm. But I think, yes, I, I think it is good because it, it a lot of times then people don't have to it's not such a black or white issue because a lot of times, you know, so much of the subtlety of politics is giving people quietly a reason to vote for something or maybe against something that they wouldn't want to do in public. And um, so I think ranked choice voting allows, allows people to do that. Just like in California, you know, we have the, the top two people who are, are uh, on the ballot, irrespective of party. Now, unfortunately, we've become such a one-party state that that doesn't benefit us as much right now. But I think those are the type of things that, yes, that, that will give people more choice. And those could allow lesser-known candidates who might not ordinarily win to have a chance. Okay, Stan from Dallas asks, how can I stay motivated when the news always seems so negative? You're an optimist. David, tell us. I think that's a, <laughs> that's a great question. And, and I am someone who deals with that all the time. I think you have to uh, focus on the, on, on the positive, focus on the things that you believe, and find people. I know there aren't that many of them out there, but uh, you know, people who, who share, your, share your views and, and, and go along with it. And also, I'd say, you know, it's okay to disagree. I think that you don't want to be with people that are totally against everything you say, but, you know, most people just they just want to be heard. They don't care if, as much whether you agree with them or whether you, you like, with, like them. And I think that's the tough thing is that so many people just feel that they, that they haven't been heard. Mm-hmm. Amen. I can't tell you how many times on the campaign trail I found that people still would tell me, you know what, I still don't agree with you, but I appreciate you listening. So I'm going to vote for you. And I thought, well, you know, God, that's really what it is about. People just want to be listened to. Just um, show them some respect. Right. Unfortunately, we have 330 million people in this country. It's hard to get around to each and every person, (laughs) but we should do a better job of trying. Jesse from Seattle, Washington asks, do, yeah, Seattle, Washington, do legacy American families of wealth need to start stepping up to lead with experience? Philanthropy is great, but do we need leadership from those who helped build this country? Well, you know, and as as someone who's obviously got some perspective on that, I would say that you know, what my great-great-grandfather did uh, doesn't make me necessarily qualified to do the same thing. So I think that a lot of people that are fortunate enough to come from uh, from legacy families and come from wealth, I think it gives you an opportunity, but it also gives you, I think, a responsibility. And uh, I would just say that uh, when people come from that type of background, they usually have an education and they have a perspective that other people don't have. So use that to find a cause that you're really passionate about. And again, you know, you don't always have to make the country better by being in office. You know, I don't have a desire to run for political office. I think I can help by being involved philanthropically and, you know, offering what I can from the, from the sidelines. So find your passion and pursue it. That's the most important thing. Um, and Andy from Columbus asks, who are the best example, examples of modern Rockefeller Republicans? Well, that's actually a, a, a very good question. I think a Rockefeller, you know, I will be the first to admit we are a severely endangered species 
<laughs> but I, when I think of Ro- when I think of Rockefeller, I think of your uncle Jay. So I think Democrats too. So Rockefellers have been everywhere. <laughs> well, a Rockefeller re- Republican by definition is someone who is socially more liberal, fiscally more conservative, which is which is what I am. And so that there were so many of people. If you if you look at someone like a uh, like a uh, Charlie Baker, the the governor of. Uh, uh, Massachusetts. I think he's he would be my my best example because he's he's done a lot. He's he what was she, again the definition is being fiscally more conservative but socially more liberal. And what one of the benefits if you're in a blue state you can do that without being penalized. But people still appreciate a lot of the uh, efficiency and a lot of the ability ability to govern. You know when you look at all these cities that are going through big crime rates and, and fiscal problems, they're all run by Democrats. And a lot of people, even in those cities, are saying, yeah, I may be a Democrat, but you know what's more important than, than party affiliation? Governance. And that's why so much is much more effective stuff is being done on the state and local level than on the national level. So, I mean, people like him, Phil Scott in, in Vermont, Bill Scott's Larry, Hogan, one, yeah. Larry Hogan in, in Maryland. And also who, Steve, who, Steve Bullock, who just... Uh, He's a Democrat, but he a was a example of mo- someone exactly. from Montana who I'd say is on the other side, who is in a Republican state, but was, had a 70 percent approval rating. So I, and I was able to do it because he had a more concern. But but of course, he's anathema in in today's Democrat Party also got almost nowhere simply because of not being liberal enough. So both parties have that that a little bit of an issue with and expecting you to to appease and please the extreme wings of the party um oftentimes to the to the detriment of the middle of the country yeah it is true um so um people can hear you where where can people find your podcast practically political not practically republican yes we are at practicallypolitical.com and uh i'm working with Carrie and we we do um we, we, we try to keep it short and sweet, so we do 10-minute uh, ten, ten segments because I know people are very busy. But um, And again, I really in, encourage people just to, to uh, think about ways that, again, the, that we can work together. And, and a lot of what the Republican Party's principles have been over the years are really, really valuable principles. And again, it's not that, they, that what the party believes in is wrong. It's just that right now, the current crop of Republicans in Washington are just not upholding what I think are are the most important principles. And the fact that you said your recent guest couldn't even really talk about what they stand for, um, that's not his fault, but he's defending the indefensible. Well, people who listen to this show know we like to try to get uh, we, it's not even really a spectrum. It's a it's a map. It's a big map of all different types of political persuasions and beliefs and whatnot. Um, and and they've definitely got the folks who've listened. You've definitely got a, um, a a vast big swing from last week's episode to this week's. Um, if you uh, are interested in pragmatism and practical governance, um, whether you're a uh, progressive or a conservative, check out uh, David's book, Practically Republican. The book is Practically Republican. Practically Republican. How Concerned Citizens Can Renew and Reclaim the GOP. Practically Republican, How Concerned Citizens Can Renew and Reclaim the GOP. Or you can check him out um, at practicallypolitical.com. David Spencer. David, I got to ask you, how the heck are we going to get along? 
Well, I, I think if we if we just think about the things that we agree upon, and that's what's amazing. If you look at the main issues, most people really want better infrastructure. Most people want sensible immigration. Uh, even in West Virginia, the most Trumpiest of all states, 75% of people support uh, voting rights. So again, and these these are these are issues that both parties that both parties have supported in the past. So I think so much of it gets drowned out by all the vitriol that sprayed back and forth. When you, because if you actually look at some of the issues, and again, I'm not talking about social issues, but I'm talking about issues that improve people's lives. That's where there's very little daylight between Trump voters and a lot of Democrats on kitchen table issues.